Good morning. What a great weekend, wasn't it? Everybody won. That counts anyway. All right. Um, I apologize for those of you who tried to get into the clinical suites yesterday. Um, not quite sure what happened with that, but uh, I'm sure you're going to be good anyway, so you didn't need the practice. Um, I don't really have any other announcements other than to give you trivia, and then we'll get started. This is about California. The state motto of California is <laughs> Eureka, a Greek word translated, I have found it. The motto was adopted in 1849 and alludes to the discovery of gold in the Sierra Nevada. There you go. Enjoy lecture. Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes? I'll take that as a yes. So <clears throat> we're going to talk about some back pain today. Um, and uh, the objectives of this lecture are to recognize the clinical characteristics, general approach and treatment options for, for the following pain syndromes, which are low back pain. We also call axial back pain because it's on the axial skeleton lumbar radiculopathy or sciatica, and neurogenic claudication or degenerative lumbar stenosis. So which are three conditions of the lumbar spine, and they're all related to the progression of degenerative disease. Back pain is a big problem in society today. 60 to 80% of all of us will end up at a doctor's office at some point in our lives because of back pain. On any given day, almost 6% of all uh, Americans have back pain. It's the second most common reason to visit uh, the doctor for a pain complaint after the headaches, uh, which means about 25 million physician visits a year. Um, most of the times people are off work for less than a week, which means that many times it's a benign and self-limited condition. Uh, <clears throat> in the general population, again, the lifetime prevalence is somewhere between 60 and 90%, so we usually talk about 80% chance of having at least one episode of back pain in your lifetimes. Now the chances that this will endure more than two weeks is only 14%, which means again that most of the times it's a benign and self-limited condition. The chances of developing sciatica are only between one to three percent um, and we will talk uh, further about this. Now, how do we define low back pain? It's, it's, only a, it's a syndromatic diagnosis, and it only means pain localized in the region between the inferior ribs and the buttocks. Now, 85% of the patients with low back pain cannot be given a precise anatomical diagnosis. So most of the times, no matter what you do, you'll never find exactly what is the pathological origin of the pain. And <clears throat> as I stated earlier, most of the times it is self-limited, so the chance of recovering in one week's time, no matter what you do, is between 30 and 60 percent, and at six weeks' time, it's about 90 percent. So most of the times, regardless of the measures used, 
this will go away. Imaging studies are a tricky thing today because they're so common and so popular. Unfortunately, if we image spines on completely asymptomatic individuals, we will find a lot of pathological alterations. In this chart, these are completely asymptomatic patients that were subject to MRI studies. And as you can see on the first column, HNP means herniated nucleus pulposus or a herniated disc. The chance of having this at the age group between 20 and 39 is 21%. And if you go to the older than 60 age group, the chances of this is almost 40%. The, on the bottom row, the chances of finding a degenerated disc, which are signs of osteoarthritic disease on the intervertebral discs in the 20 to 40 year old group is over 30%. And when you reach age 60, it's over 90%, which means that this is a common, it, is, it has a common progression through life and it's related to aging. So the MRI does not make a diagnosis. The goal of the clinician is to identify patients who require immediate surgical evaluation and those whose symptoms suggest a more serious underlying condition. And this we base on the study of red flags. There's three questions you have to uh, <clears throat> impose. One is, is there a systemic disease causing the pain? The second one, is there a neurologic compromise which would require an immediate surgical evaluation. And the third one is, are there any psychosocial distress <coughs> amplifying or prolonging the pain? We're gonna start with the first question about underlying medical conditions. The first thing that will haunt the doctor is if the patient's pain is related to cancer. So we suspect cancer in patients that are older than 50 that have a constant pain, what we usually call resting pain. It's pain that goes on throughout the day, but the patients refer that um, <clears throat> they can work through it and do their activities. But at the end of the day, when they get home and things settle down, that's when the pain is the worst and it affects their, their sleep and, and, and it's the, the pain is there all the time. Having a past medical history of cancer, no matter how many years have gone by, is something that should always call your attention and these patients need to be further studied. Presenting progressive neurological symptoms and having unexplained weight loss or other constitutional symptoms should also alert you to the possibility of cancer as a source of back pain. Here you see a, um, <coughs> And uh, this is an, an MRI image, and this is what we call a sagittal section. So we're looking at the body from the side. And the skin on the back is here, and the chest is here. This is the thoracic spine. And you can see that the vertebrae, they all have this uh, clear, uh, this uh, high signal intensity. And on this area, there's a large mass here affecting most of this vertebral body into the pedicle or the neural arch. And on an axial section of the same image, you can see that all this is a tumor which has pretty much occupied all of the area where the vertebra used to be. The second red flag is of spinal infections. The spine can be infected. A disc space infection is called a discitis 
and this can affect the two adjacent vertebral bodies. That's a vertebral osteomyelitis, or also called a spondylitis. And here you can see that all these patients' discs have a, a low signal intensity. They look very dark. Um, and this disc has a high signal intensity, and the end plates next to it are eroded. And there's also fluid collection here that is displaced in the dural sac, and that's an epidural abscess. So that is pus in the spine. And here you can see that through the uh, foramina on both sides, there's pus draining out into the psoas muscles. So all this is purulence, diabetic patient. So when do we suspect an infection? If there's fevers or chills. If there's been a recent skin infection, urinary tract infection, a dental procedure, um, these patients will present with constant pain, resting pain, nighttime pain, particularly immunocompromised hosts, the use of um, steroids, IV drugs or alcohol abuse will put these patients at a greater risk. Immunocompromised hosts include patients who take drugs that affect the immune system, like transplant patients, for example, uh, include patients who have acquired or congenital uh, immune compromise. The third red flag is for fractures. So if you have a, a young patient that um, has back pain and you ask the patient if he's done anything unusual in the last uh, few days and, and he says, well, by the way, I was uh, fixing the shingles on my roof and I fell down last weekend. Well, it's pretty obvious there's likely to be a fracture there and you need to study that patient before you send him home. Um, but in older patients, particularly over 50, uh, with a history of osteoporosis, or that have used drugs that affect the bone mineralization, such as steroids, they are at higher risk of having fractures with low energy mechanisms. So a typical story is a 75-year-old lady who says that uh, she went to pick up her cat, and when she bent over, she felt a pop in her back, and since then the back's been hurting constantly. So very likely she has a compression fracture. Um, in particular, I always... Um, highlight seizure disorders because there are drugs to treat seizures that severely affect the mineralization of the bones, but probably the, the most frequent drug that has this effect are the use of steroids. Uh, <clears throat> our fourth red flag are inflammatory conditions. The most common one that affects the spine is ankylosing spondylitis. Um, this usually presents in, um, <clears throat> in younger adults. Um, the pain is usually worse in the morning. Uh, the patients present with progressive limitation of their flexibility, they start to get stiffer, and that also affects the rib cage, so their respiratory excursion also diminishes. Um, frequently, there are uh, forms of peripheral arthritis associated to this, also uveitis affecting the eye, um, and very commonly, sacroiliitis, which is an inflammatory disorder of the sacroiliac joints. And you can diagnose this early on by finding inflammatory activity on a bone scan or an MRI, or later on you can find on x-rays or CT scan that there are erosions around the sacroiliac joints. Ankylosing spondylitis affects all of the spinal ligaments, and you can see the, the discs and the anterior longitudinal ligament and posterior longitudinal ligament, they all calcify and make the spine very stiff. And as the spine stiffens, it starts to deform and it produces very horrible uh, forms of deformity. So those are 
the red flags for systemic diseases that can produce back pain. So it is your mission to try to filter out through these questions when you see the patient because you don't want to send home a patient that has an underlying condition. Uh, the second question is if there is a neurological compromise requiring surgical evaluation. The most dramatic form of <coughs> neurologic manifestation in the lumbar spine is the Cotaquina syndrome. Cotaquina syndrome requires a large compressive mass that affects the spinal canal. Oops. And, and here you can see again, this is a, uh, a sagittal uh, MRI uh, image. The skin on the back is here, the belly is on this side. And this is the spinal canal, the spinal cord ends here, and all these are the nerve roots of the cotaquina. And they are surrounded by spinal fluid, except for here, that there's a very, very narrow area. And you can see that this disc has almost completely extruded into the spinal canal and is occupying most of the spinal canal. So that will affect all of the nerve roots from that level down. As a consequence of that, Patients will present with saddle anesthesia. That's an, it's a loss of sensation between the legs and in the groin area. <coughs> they can present uh, uni or bilateral weakness in their lower extremities. This is a form of paraplegia. Patients can become paraplegic because of this. They will have an abnormal rectal examination with a decreased rectal tone. They will have urinary retention, so they will not feel like going, and the bladder is going to get fuller and fuller until they start to leak. So they will have some dribbling because of overflow of the bladder. Um, and they can also be incontinent in their bowels. So this is a very dramatic form of, um, of neurogenic compromise in the lumbar spine. So these patients obviously merit imaging studies, labs, and talk to a surgeon. The last question is if there are any psychosocial distress that may amplify or prolong the pain. Depression, somatization disorders, back pain is one of the most common forms or common, most common areas where people will present somatization disorders. Substance abuse, job dissatisfaction, pursuit of disability compensation, or involvement in litigations would always be a confounding factor. And that's why these patients are the ones that consume the greatest amount of resources. There's a lot of expenses, and many days um, uh, of work loss, uh, many tests, many second, second opinions, et cetera, et cetera. So always keep this in mind. Now, in a primary care setting, this is how your diagnosis will be distributed. 97% of the times, this will be on the box of mechanical low back pain. And this is a big black box encompassing many, many things. Most of the times, we will call this strain and sprain of the back. Bottom line, there is not a clear anatomical diagnosis. There is not an imaging test. There is not a functional test that can actually prove this. We call this sprain and strain. And those are the patients that most of the times, regardless of treatments, this will go away. There's other forms of pain related to the progression of arthritic changes in the lumbar spine, such as arthropathy of the facet joints, a herniated disc, or spinal stenosis, that will also be 
causing back pain, and as you see, the numbers are pretty low there. The second box here are non-mechanical conditions. So the red flags we were talking about, neoplasm, infections, or inflammatory arthritis, encompass only 1% of the patients you see in, in a primary care setting. And finally, also with a very low number, we can find other forms of visceral disease, such as endometriosis or nephrolithiasis, that will also produce pain on the back. So again, most of the times we're going to be on this area, and most of the times it's going to be strain and sprain. Now, in patients over 65, we have to be more careful. Patients over 65 years old are not uh, subject to compensation and have uh, less uh, psychosocial uh, stressors. Um, and here, on a primary care setting, the incidence of these pathologies, cancer, compression fractures, spinal stenosis, and aortic aneurysms go to the top of the list. So we are more prone to find these conditions on patients older than 65. How do we treat back pain? We divide back pain into acute and chronic. And acute is all forms of pain that go away within the first six weeks' time. There is very, very little class one evidence to prove any, that any treatment modality modifies the natural history of this disease. Probably the only thing we know today is that patients who stay in bed for less than two days versus patients who stay in bed for a week or longer have a dramatically different um, prognosis and they go to work and get back into their lives much faster. So the general trend is to keep patients active, not at rest, to try to continue their activities as best possible and that positively influence their recovery. Non-steroidal medications, muscle relaxants, massage, spinal manipulation, chiropractics, acupuncture, etc., are all class three or class four data. That means there are no clear randomized or prospective trials that can prove that any of these modifies the natural history of disease. Okay? So here's where medicine becomes an art. And if you are as certain as possible that you're not missing out on a more serious underlying condition, you can take a pick what you think is best and tell your patient that with that they're going to be okay because most likely that is what's going to happen within a few weeks' time. Finally, stress the, pre the prevention aspects um, <clears throat> of medicine, which are each time more important. And of course, aerobic exercise, weight loss, and core strengthening are important in preventing further episodes or recurrence of disease. Now, chronic back pain is a different story. It's pain that lasts for more than three months. Um, probably the most effective workhorses to treat this problem today are multidisciplinary care programs based on physical therapy and cognitive behavioral interventions. I'm not going to go into more details of this, um, <coughs> but um, basically uh, we want to put the people back into their, their lives because chronic pain leads to increased sensibility to pain, uh, leads into progressive deconditioning and weakness, and all that contributes to perpetuating the problem. And all this can be modified with a uh, multidisciplinary care program. The role of surgery for chronic back pain in most conditions is unclear today. 
The second, <coughs> the second uh, clinical syndrome is sciatica or lumbar radiculopathy. That is the finest pain that extends from the low back into the lower extremity in a dermatomal distribution. Um, the three most common reasons why people have sciatica, I have uh, <coughs> outlined them uh, by age groups. And for the younger group, the 20 to 50 year olds, the most common diagnosis is a herniated disc, which means that the, the contents of the nucleus pulposus has extruded through a ruptured annulus and occupies space in the spinal canal where the nerve roots travel into your lower extremities. Um, there's a mechanical component to this, but there's also an inflammatory component. The disc is an avascular structure, is the largest avascular structure in the body, and, and, um, <coughs> and the immune system um, does not recognize it as proper. So when this is exposed to the immune system, there's an enormous inflammatory reaction and this inflammatory reaction affects nerve conduction and affects uh, nerve irritability. So inflammation has a lot to do with the genesis of pain. <coughs> the second condition that um, uh, causes uh, sciatica, and especially in younger patients, is spondylolisthesis. Spondylolisthesis is a condition where the pars is fractured. The pars is the anatomical region of the laminas that connects the superior articular process with the inferior articular process. So it's the bridge between the joint that goes to the vertebra above and the joint that goes to the vertebra below. And when this happens, that can allow the spine to translate. So there's a translatory deformity. This is a lateral x-ray of the lumbar spine. This is a tailbone. This is L5. And then there's a step off, and this is L4, L3, etc. So there's a step off here, okay? Now, that can produce back pain, but it can also produce sciatica. And the reason for that is that this space here is where the nerve root exits the spine. At this level, that exit or that foramen is much smaller. So these patients have foraminal stenosis, and that's why they can develop sciatica. <coughs> and the third differential is spinal stenosis, which happens in most in patients older than 50. And what happens here is that this, this will be a normal area of the spinal canal. So this is the vertebral body. This is the neural arch. These are the muscles in the back. And this is the spinal canal. And the clear gray color, or almost white color, is the spinal fluid, which is bathing the nerve roots that are all clustered here on the, on the most um, posterior parts. And this would be an abnormal section where these are the facet joints that are hypertrophic. They're thickened together with a ligamentum flavum that is also thickened. And all the space that's left for the nerve roots is this area here. So this would be normal for this patient. This would be abnormal. So there's a very narrow area for the nerves to be. And in certain positions, that becomes the narrowest. And the longer you do that, the more pressure builds up in those nerves and people have pain. <coughs> um, <coughs> it is very important to recognize the relationship between the nerves of the cauticoina and the different anatomical structures in the spine. So this 
is an anatomical specimen where the neural arch has been removed. So there's no lamina, so it's a set joint. So we have the pedicles, these are the pedicles, and these are the exiting nerve roots, okay? This is the dural sac, and these are all the nerve roots inside the dural sac. So when the nerve root exits the dural sac, between the exit portion of the dural sac and the foramen, we call this the transversing nerve root. And when the nerve root goes between the pedicles, this is the area we call the foramen, we call it the exiting nerve root. Most disc herniations occur in this area. This is called the posterolateral disc herniation. So, the nerve roots that leaves the spine in the foramen underneath the L5 nerve root, the, the L5 pedicle is the L5 nerve roots. So the pedicle and the nerve root have the same name, okay? So a disc herniation at the, the L4, L5 disc will affect the transversing L5 nerve root most of the times. Exceptionally, disc herniations can occur in a lateral position. We call those far lateral or foraminal disc herniations. So a foraminal disc herniation at L5S1 may also affect the exiting L5 nerve roots. You want me to repeat that or is crystal clear? Yes? No? Yes. Okay. So the nerve roots exits the dural sac and travels in the spinal canal for a short distance before it starts to go into the foramen and thus exit the spine to go into your leg, okay? So, the nerve roots, while it travels in the spinal canal, is called the transversing nerve roots. The nerve root, when it exits the foramen, is called the exiting nerve roots. But it's the same nerve roots. Now, by convention, we call the nerve roots the name we give to the nerve roots is the same as the pedicle under which it exits from the spine. So between the L5 and S1 pedicle, the L5 nerve roots is exiting the spine. Between the L4 and L5 pedicle, the L4 nerve root is exiting the spine. But this nerve root already comes from a little bit higher above, okay? So most disc herniations occur here, closer to the midline of the spinal canal, and we call those posterolateral disc herniations. And that type of disc herniation will affect the transversing nerve roots. Okay, so L5 comes from up here. So an L4, L5 disc herniation will affect most likely the transversing L5 nerve roots. That's what happens most of the times. Now, sometimes, probably 5% or less, the this herniation can occur to the side, and we call that a far lateral or a foraminal disc herniation. So that will not affect the transversing S1 nerve roots. It will affect the exiting L5 nerve roots. Okay? So the question is, if you have a far lateral L4, L5 disc herniation, what nerve root will it affect? L4. Perfect. You got it. All right? That's, that's all. So, for sciatica, <coughs> um, unless there's a very profound neurological deficit, as we saw earlier, this can be treated conservatively. 
And it all depends on how effective your treatment measures are and how patients are feeling. We know today that surgical care has, I'm sorry, let me, <coughs> we know today that surgical care makes a difference in short-term outcomes. So in the first one to two years, people who are operated have faster relief of their symptoms. In the long term, it does not matter whether you get an operation or not, the results are exactly the same. So this does not need to be operated on. And conservative care works probably a little bit over half the time. So about 60% of the times with conservative care, the pain goes away to a reasonable degree where patients feel they do not need an operation to treat this problem. Now, what forms of conservative care do we use? Nosteroidal medications, physical therapy, some activity restrictions. If you have a herniated disc, you don't want to be doing things where you're going to force or in increase the pressure on the disc. So it means no bending, stooping, and limiting the lifting. Okay. Um, the use of steroids in the spine, injectable steroids, like you see here on this uh, CT scan, they have a needle here that's on the S1 foramen, so they're putting a steroid on the S1 nerve roots, can also be very effective. But again, all in all, with all these measures, a little bit over half the patients get adequate relief within a reasonable time period. Now, in medicine, we call reasonable about three months, but this is very individual. Because surgeries have risks. And some people are better risk takers and others are worse risk takers. Some people are very conservative. Some people say, look, I'd rather hang in there and use all the medical measures, but I don't want to take the risk of an operation. Other people are more pragmatic and they say, you know what? Just uh, do the operation, let's get it over with. So there is a lot to say about people's values and the way people face these things. So what I'm trying to get to is that the decision between conservative care and surgery is mostly a patient-driven decision. So when the pain is intractable, it persists more than three months, or there's a, as we said earlier, a major neurologic loss, we choose to do surgery. And this is an, either an ambulatory or an overnight in the hospital surgery to remove just uh, this material that is extruded into the spinal canal and it's irritating the nerve roots. So it's, it's a prompt recovery, it's a pretty effective um, operation. But again, it only affects the natural history of the disease in the short term, all right? So in the long term, it's exactly the same. And here I can show you as an example, a 51-year-old patient who was treated conservatively. He has low back pain and your right-sided leg pain and you can see he's got a, a pretty large extruded disc at L4, L5 in a posterolateral position. So that's affecting what nerve roots? L4, L5, posterolateral, L5 nerve roots. Very good. Um, and he was treated conservatively. He continued to work. And about a year down the road, he came back and he was still having some back pain and was kind of anxious of knowing if he could still have surgery. And a repeat MRI looks like this. So that's where the disc was earlier. And this is one year down the road. So no surgery. The steroids did not dissolve it. It's your immune system. Okay? So nature is wiser than surgeons. Um, yeah. Okay. And the 
And the last uh, clinical syndrome we need to talk about is neurogenic claudication, which is the most common manifestation of lumbar stenosis and consists of pain, paresthesias, that means tingling or electrical sensation, and weakness that worsen with the onset of ambulation or in standing position, and that is promptly relieved by sitting or lying down. Now, this, <coughs> uh, this mimics another differential diagnosis, which is peripheral vascular disease. And one of the most important points is to try to learn how to distinguish be between the two. I'm sorry. So degenerative lumbar stenosis, the pain is mostly dependent on posture, not on exercise. So patients, whether they're walking or just standing at a cocktail party, the longer they do that, the more pressure and pain that starts to build up, and it affects first the buttocks, then the thighs, then the calves, and then it goes all the way down into the feet. There is a classic grocery cart sign where if the patient is leaning on something, like a grocery cart, they can walk much longer and better than they do if they try to walk upright without any supports. Especially for the ladies, they enjoy the shopping because there they can, they can walk. But if they try to walk down the street, they can't even go for a block because that is long enough to start producing a lot of pain. Since this does not depend on exercise, these patients can pedal on a stationary bicycle without any difficulty, okay? This is opposed to peripheral vascular disease, which is an exercise-induced problem. So if a person with peripheral vascular disease, if you put them to exercise on a stationary bicycle, they will not tolerate it. A person with spinal stenosis, they can go on and on on a stationary bicycle much better than they're able to walk. And usually the, the neurologic exam in these patients is normal, at rest. But if you send them to do a treadmill for 10 or 15 minutes and then examine them, you can find changes. Now, there are dynamic changes on posture and the pressure you have in your discs or your spinal canal. And this, this is very old research, at least 225 years old, that was done on volunteers, medical students where they placed a catheter in this epidural space, and with this catheter they were able to measure the pressure in the epidural space, and they also placed a catheter in the nucleus of the disc, and they could measure the pressures on the nucleus of the disc, all right? And the results are that when you are, um, the disc pressure is on these bars, and when you're sitting or standing in a flex position, that is when the pressure is highest on the discs, okay? So if a person has this disease, like a disc herniation, the longer they sit, the more pain they're going to have, okay? Whereas when you stand, okay, the, the straighter up you stand, the more pressure you have in your spinal canal because there's a dynamic modification of the dimensions of the spinal canal. And for any of you, that is not a problem because you have a, a wide canal. But a person who's built up a lot of osteophytes and thickened ligaments, as I showed you earlier, it does make a big difference in what position they are. So if you make this patient's walk with a catheter in the epidural space again, you can see the fluctuations in pressure are, are way up here, okay, as compared to a normal spinal canal where the fluctuations in pressure are much lower. So these are the medical students. These are the patients 
with spinal stenosis. And if you make them walk without flexion, it's pretty similar to this. But if they walk, again, leaning on a grocery cart or a walker, the fluctuations in pressure are much lower. All right? So that proves that this depends on the, <coughs> on the position. And in this experiment, these were not medical students, these were rabbits. <laughs> you put these uh, this pressure balloons, okay? And if you constrict with two pressure balloons, the motor action potential, so the electric activity of the nerves, is dramatically decreased after a few minutes. So it's gone. So the nerve conduction is affected if you clamp or you put pressure on the coine at two points. And why is that? Because that creates an area here in between where there is venous pooling. So the blood flows into that area, but it has a hard time flowing out of that area. So that starts to build up pressure there. And that's what affects the nerve conduction. Now, as I said earlier, spinal stenosis depends on the development of arthritic disease on the facet joints. And for the same patient, depending on the level where you are looking, you will find disease or not. So at the level of the pedicles here, where there is no facet joint, the spinal canal is normal. And if you go up higher here to this level, where the disc and the facet joints are, that's where most of these tissues have hypertrophied and have occupied a lot of space in the spinal canal. Conservative care for spinal stenosis is <coughs> indicated for patients with mild or moderate symptoms. Patients with multiple comorbid conditions, since this is a condition related to advanced stages of osteoarthritic disease of the spine, it usually comes in elderly. So the average age where people manifest spinal stenosis is 65. So at 65, life starts to get more brittle. And there are much more comorbid conditions that you are carrying on through life. High blood pressure, coronary disease, diabetes, etc. So that puts the patients at higher surgical risk. Um, there are multiple modalities of, modalities of treatment. But the bottom line is, this is like having arthritis in your hip. It will not go away. Okay? And in, 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 ten year, in a 10-year perspective, these patients with conservative care options usually go through cycles like this, okay? There's periods where they feel a little better, periods where they feel a little worse, but at the end of the day, 10 years down the road, the level of function is very similar to that which they started their treatments. Now, on the other hand, this is not a progressively debilitating disease. So these patients, it's extremely rare that they develop any kind of neurological loss and they don't die earlier because of this either, okay? So this is about quality of life, just like any other arthritic disease, and uh, it can be modified with medical care, but the treatment that is most effective today is surgery, but you have to consider, again, that it's a population with high risks. So the severity of symptoms and functional limitations um, <coughs> the um, preoperative risk stratification is mandatory, but in spite of that, we're talking 10, 20, or up to 40% chances of having some type of medical complication, which is very high. Um, and as I said earlier, the results are significantly superior to conservative care, and uh, the basic surgery to relieve this problem is to 
open the spinal canal, to punch a hole in the spinal canal, to give the nerve roots space again to improve their, their circulation and, and uh, blood flow. So, take home points. The lifetime prevalence of back pain is between 60 and 80 percent. So that means that most of you in this room at some point will show up at the doctor's office with this problem. Back pain is frequently a benign and self-limited condition and the role of the physician is to identify patients who require immediate surgical evaluation and those whose symptoms suggest a more serious underlying condition. Sciatica can be caused mainly by three disorders, a herniated disc in the younger patients, spinal stenosis in older patients, and ischemic spondylolisthesis again in younger patients. Imaging studies must perfectly correlate with the clinical findings to suggest a diagnosis. So I showed you charts where you find many, many anatomical changes in completely asymptomatic individuals. And if you make a career out of operating MRIs, you will not be very successful because the diagnosis is in the history and the physical exam and the MRI corroborates your diagnosis, but it doesn't make a diagnosis by itself. And finally, <clears throat> the natural history of herniated disc is frequently benign and self-limited and surgery only improves short-term outcomes. Now some recent research in terms of a, what we call cost to society, okay, also proves surgery as a more effective treatment method because you decrease the um, days off work and, and um, other, other types of payments. So overall, if you do a strictly cost-benefit analysis in economical terms, surgery seems to be better. But again, we are all humans and, and uh, there's, I think, a lot more things to take in consideration. And one of those is the patient's, the person's values and how, what their adversity to risk is. And finally, the symptoms of lumbar stenosis are described as neurogenic claudication. They worsen with the onset of ambulation or standing and are promptly relieved by sitting or lying down. The hypertrophy of the facet joints and the spinal ligaments decrease the area of the spinal canal and postural changes affect the dimensions of the spinal canal inducing the symptoms of spinal stenosis. So I have uh, finished like 10 minutes short. So you have 10 minutes to fire questions. Are we crystal clear on the anatomical relationships between the bones and the discs and the nerves of the cauda equina? Because that, that is a key piece of information you need to have between the interpretation of your patient's symptoms and what you find on the MRI, okay? So if you have a patient that you suspect has an L5 radiculopathy and your MRI shows a posterolateral L5-S1 herniated disc, does that make sense? It doesn't make sense, right? So be careful with that. So you have a chance of failing if you take that patient to the UR because the patient's symptoms and the imaging studies do not match perfectly. And if it doesn't, that means you need to do further workup until you can clarify this. So no questions? No? 
So the next questions you'll see are in your test. <laughs> Alrighty, well, thank you.